this is going to be the greatest single presidential library in the history of the United States of America. Trump's library? Dude, it's going to be like Hustler, like back issues <laughs> from the 70s. Like that's the whole thing on 44th and 9th. It's only open from like 9 p.m. to like 4 a.m. Are we ready? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. Our Gentile of the Week is celebrity chef Tom Colicchio, or shall I say great chef Tom Colicchio, who happens to be a celebrity. He's the head judge on Top Chef, and he's the founder of Crafted Hospitality. And our Jew this week is Professor Dr. Lila Corwin Berman, who spoke with us about her new book, The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex. And she had some really interesting things to say about the way that money gets tossed hither and yawn in Jewish communal life. But before we get to those ace guests, as well as a super hot trove of mail from our inbox, I mean, it is, the inbox has been on fire this week. Before we get to that, there's been some news in America. There's been, you know, some people went to some polls and, you know, they voted and stuff. And the most important thing we have to tell you is that- And a week and a half later, (laughs) we know some things. The most important thing we have to tell you is that Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin have retained their seats in the House of Representatives. John Ossoff, another important member of the tribe, lives to fight another day down in Georgia. And gay Jewish Republican gay club owner endorsed by an Indian American PAC, Moro Garza, got only one third of the vote against Joaquin Castro. So the the most interesting potential new Jewish member of Congress falls flat down in Texas. So on a scale of like one to 18, how are Jews doing this this electoral season? I think we're doing like about a uh, an eight-day holiday. We're doing about yeah. a, a Sukkot if you throw in a Sheminiat Seret. Right. But I think we can agree that while we have not yet gotten to the White House, which of course will be the, the ultimate prize and something that our conspiracy has yet to deliver for us, we are circling the Oval Office. Uh, as we usher one family with assorted Jewish hangers-on out the door, we will be welcoming in two new families with a Sorted Jewish hangers on because um, am I right that that Joe Biden has has Jews in the family has some uh, some, yes. some some flavor He's got some there real yichas, yeah okay so what remind me Stephanie who what's the what's the Jewish quotient of of Bidenshire Manor so available in articles titled things like everything you need to know about Joe Biden's Jewish relatives and uh, <laughs> five Jewish things to know about Jewish uh, about Bra- brought Jewish to you Biden. by. By Stormfront Magazine, the (laughs) white nationalist (laughs) publication. So basically, all three of Joe Biden's children have at one point married Jews. And his daughter, Ashley, married (laughs) and Sorry, I'm laughing because there's like the the former vice president danced the horror at their wedding. Um, His daughter, Ashley, in 2012, married Howard Krein, who's an otolaryngeologist. How do you even? I don't even know how to say that word. Wait, you don't even need to continue. Married Howard is enough, Stephanie. Like, there you go. What else would Howard be? Ashley married an ENT, basically. At like an event somewhere, he said, I'm the only Irish Catholic you know who had his dream met because his daughter married a Jewish surgeon. So he is on board. His his late son, Beau, his wife was Hallie Oliver, as the forward writes, a Jewish Delaware native whose parents owned a dry cleaning business. And I'm like, you wow. know what? Dry, if we can't get dry goods, we'll get dry cleaning. And that, you know, for Biden's son to have found 
a Jewish Delaware native is, I mean, that's sort of like perfection, right? Like they kept yes. it in the family Delaware, blue hen wise. The only other Jewish woman from Delaware, perhaps as great, is Mrs. Leah Leibowitz. That's uh, true. Of course, a Delawarean. So. And then we've already talked about Melissa Cohen, who recently married Hunter Biden, and they had a baby together. And that baby was on stage. Like a, uh, Joe Biden was holding a tiny Jewish baby on stage to claim victory. I love the way you say a tiny Jewish baby, like a little pocket sized little it was munch, like, a little. I mean, it's like a really small baby. Little tidy little little kinderlach. And I literally said, Ben, that's his Jewish grandson. And Can I, was I just like, tell you, what have this, I become? this entire conversation sounds like the worst version ever of the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. It's like, it does. Joe Biden has an inauguration. <laughs> but before that, he danced the Hora at all of his kids' wedding celebrations. Like, come on, man. And the fact that the Machatunim are in the dry cleaning business. I mean, that's, I just love <laughs> the idea that there's some, you know, at, at Pesach, Joe and Jill show up, you know, they bring a nice um, tuna loaf with a, a jello mold, you know, a mayonnaise topped jello mold <laughs> afterwards uh, for dessert. Oh, and they're greeted by Howard and, you know, well, Fidel, the dry cleaning king and queen of Dover. I mean, this is this is primo stuff. At, this, at the same event where he said the thing about his, how happy he was that his daughter married a Jewish surgeon, he someone, I guess, yelled that he was a mensch. And he responded, if I'm going to switch, I know where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Joe, if you're interested in coming home to Judaism, we have an encyclopedia to sell you. Uh, we have a podcast for you to listen to. We're we're willing to to dance you along that path. I also want to say that I'm reading one of these five things to know about Jewish Joe Biden. It's, it's the section about him and Golda Meir. Uh, that's one of the bullet points. And it says, <laughs> of course. So here's the deal. Joe hearts Golda Meir a lot. <laughs> Milwaukee native Golda Meir. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I, I need to stop reading these articles. So that's Joe. And there will be a lot for us to follow in the next four years about the, the Jewish journey of Joe Biden. Kamala Harris, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, is married, as we know, to Boychik Doug Emhoff, who is a Jew. And his kids apparently call her Mamala, which is adorable. I found a 2014 headline from the Indian American publication, The American Bazaar, which is you know for people of Indian ancestry in the United States. And somebody had posted it to some Jewish website saying, you know who's more like ethnocentric and chauvinistic than the Jews? The Indians. And when Kamala Harris got married, the headline was most eligible Indian American bachelorette marries fellow lawyer, <laughs> which is just... <laughs> you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot actually about Kamala Harris and, and the sort of Indian Jewish connection because I bet you that just like, you know, the Jewish vibe, there is some... Indian mother sitting there be like, really? Vice president? Number two? Couldn't, couldn't score president? Didn't get the A plus in the test? That's nice. We're not celebrating who, any of this. Who beat you on this test? Exactly. Joe? Joey? Some guy named Joey Joe? beat you? Right. An Irish man? What? What is this? <laughs> You're not going to the prom. Study harder. <laughs> I think there are such interesting parallels. I mean, we talked about this last week. Just this idea of these two, like, you know, largely immigrant communities in the United States and and the, you know, model minority stuff. And I'm, I guess this gives us sort of four years to, like, parse that and to, like, get deep into that, which I really like. Right, because Doug Amhoff's mother is, like, really second gentleman? Like, who's first gentleman? You lost to Jill Biden? I just want to say that according to Vogue.com, which did a five things you have to know about Douglas Emhoff, uh, I'll just quote here, his most famous client, he's an entertainment lawyer, might have been the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Yo quiero Taco Bell. As The Hollywood Reporter wrote in a 2019 profile of Emhoff, at the beginning of the 2000s, Yo Quiero Taco Bell was a familiar refrain thanks to a series of ads featuring the live-action pooch developed by Emhoff's client, TBWA. 
But a Michigan company said that it had actually created the Psycho Chihuahua character for Taco Bell and sued for breach of contract. When it was forced to pay $42 million, Taco Bell tried to pass on the bill to the ad agency, but Emhoff's legal work successfully deflected that claim. (laughs) Doug Emhoff protecting the ad agency that created the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. I know your stance on purebred dogs. How do you feel about chihuahuas? Well, I think the J. Crew knows well where I stand on purebred dogs. I'm not going to be a hater against chihuahuas right now, especially as Doug Emhoff is the, um, the Jewish protector of chihuahuas. But I will say that Joe Biden has two dogs. This was where the Oppenheimers were last night. Sid and I are Googling because, you know, Trump's basically the first president in history not to have a dog or at least in a century. Right. Which is sort of as far as I could just like not even know, to pretend to have a dog that right. like, lives at the White House. He, he barely <laughs> pretends to have a son and he was not going to pretend to have a dog. Joe Biden has two, one of whom is a rescue dog. That is like, no matter your politics. Oppenheimer's vote, sold, gone, Game done. over. I love a the re- guy. This will be, th- according to Sid Oppenheimer, who did this research last night, this will be the first ever shelter dog, the first ever rescue dog you in the White House. You sound so excited about this. At last, Joe Biden will bring a rescue dog into the White House. and This is what we do, Mark. We start a political action committee, and we call it Wolf Pack, and it's only to encourage candidates <laughs> with shelter rescue dogs to run for office. That's it. And Wolf Blitzer does interviews with all the shelter dogs. He's in the, the titular head of the Wolf Pack. Literally, I will give to that. I will put my vote in escrow to be cast for whoever that pack endorses. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green, Working Families, Likud, you name it. Wait, can I play you guys Kamala's impression of her mother-in-law? She does an impression of her Jewish mother-in-law? Yes. yes. Hold on. Oh, Let's see if you can hear it. And they're originally from Brooklyn. Okay, so the first time I meet my mother-in-law, she looks at me. She puts my hand, my face in her hand. <laughs> so it's Barb and Mike, my father-in-law's Mike. She puts my face in her hand. She looks at me and she says, oh, look at you. <gasps> You're prettier than you on television. Mike, look at her. No, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, it's like vaguely problematic. <laughs> we but... forgive all. That's, that's, uh, I, I'm... <laughs> I'm into that. I'm into more. I'm into more Barb and Mike in person. Can we get Barb? Let's book Josh, Robert, Sarah. Let's let's book Barb Emhoff. No, I think it's Barb and Mike. I think it's a package deal. It's a package deal. Barb I think and we Mike. We want both of them together. Absolutely, absolutely. I th- I kind of imagine them being like Ali Raisman's parents when they were watching her at the Olympics. You know those videos of them being like, like you could see their faces so nervous as she was doing her routines. I feel like that's going to be them, <laughs> just watching the next four years. We should, we should have like a live cam, a barb and yes. mic cam on their house <laughs> like in Like a California. C-SPAN. Yep. And no matter who the candidate is, this is what we do as a Jewish media, right? Like it's Absolutely. like the four things you didn't know about Joe Biden's Jewish adopted shelter dog. Does Mike Pence have any Jewish relatives? Can he turn up one Jewish? You know, his boss had, you know, a whole Orthodox family. Can Mike Pence turn up one Jewish relative? He's not even allowed to be in the room with a Jew. Josh <laughs> Cross. Josh for Cross. shame. Leah Leibowitz, happy secular birthday to you today. My gentilic birthday is indeed today. Welcome to your mid-40s, officially mid-40s. Mid-ish, indeed. Uh, You know, Kristallnacht is a great day to have a birthday for any Jewish kid. It's, (laughs) you know, years and years of fun programming at your elementary school. Very sparkly. I mean, I will say that I talked to you last week and it was your Hebrew birthday and you were like, you were giddy, almost childlike with excitement about your Hebrew birthday. You're very subdued on your actual birthday. 
again, when you go through your entire life and being like, today, class, we celebrate Liel's birthday and commemorate the beginning of the Holocaust. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll pass. I'm it wasn't good. really the beginning. I would say it was more the escalation of the Holocaust. Was Crystal well, d- depends depends on when you begin the count. It was a real turning you know? point. It was the firing gun at the starting line of, a, of right. what ended up being a long race of like a, a mile of a, of a three thousand meter. You race. Almost, almost called a long march. It was it was the end yeah. of the tailgate and the beginning <laughs> of the show. And now you will always remember uh, the week of your birthday as the week when we lost a uh, a very important Jew. So listen, th- this is this is actually kind of uncanny. Four years ago, um, on my fortieth birthday, I had this absolutely you know tumultuous, chaotic week. Uh, Trump's election obviously left many of us kind of feeling very disoriented and confused, uh, and. The same week we lost my my beloved teacher, and I'm proud to say friend, Saint Rabbi Leonard Cohen. And by some kind of eerie coincidence, here we are, and it's it's Shabbos, uh, and the election is decided, and you know, there's all kinds of emotion out there. A lot of people are very happy, a lot of people are very angry. And in the midst of all this turmoil, we get the news that we lost yet another great Jewish teacher, rabbi, scholar. Someone we had the pleasure of having on the show a few times, someone who we love dearly, someone who inspired us, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And so here's what I want to do now. You know, we, we, we spent a lot of time uh, on this show, kind of like making light of a lot of things. But it, it strikes me that losing a man like Rabbi Sachs and losing him at this moment in time, when really there's still a lot of healing to be done, calls for a Hasidic story. So with your permission... I'd like to tell one in his honor. May I? Please. Permission granted. So this story is about the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel Ben Eliezer, who is the founder of the Hasidic movement. Once upon a time, there was this rich Jew who kept reading that uh, all these people were having all these encounters with the prophet Elijah. You know, here you are, the prophet Elijah is supposed to come during the Passover Seder, and he's supposed to be there during the bris. And this guy says to himself, I want to meet the prophet Elijah. If other people get to meet him, I should be able to meet him as well. So he goes to the Baal Shem Tov and he says, okay, I want to meet the prophet Elijah. And the Baal Shem Tov says, no problem at all. Here you go. Jots down an address and a piece of paper, gives it to the guy, and says to the guy, go there around 6 or 7 p.m. today. And the guy says, that's it? And the Baal Shem Tov says, yeah, that's that's all you need to do. Oh, just one more thing. Do me a favor. You know, you can't go to meet the prophet Elijah empty-handed. You know, when you go, bring chicken, bring some potatoes, bring some bread, maybe some wine. You know, it's really an important prophet. Come come with, with treats. So the guy buys all this food, and he goes to this address. When he gets to this address, the house is like small, it's like ramshackle, not really where you would expect to meet the prophet. But he says, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, the greatest Hasidic master of our time, uh, said this is the place, that's the place. Knocks on the door, and this woman opens the door. And this woman is kind of, you know, she's youngish, but, you know, there's six or seven children running around, and she looks like she could barely afford to take care uh, and feed all of them. Man walks in, gives her all the food, sits there and waits and everyone eats the food and he waits and he waits and he waits and he gets later and later and later. Finally, you know, Prophet Elijah doesn't show up. The man gets up and leaves. Next morning, he goes to see the Baal Shem Tov again. He says, I'm really sorry, but like, you told me to go to this place. I went to the place. The Prophet Elijah never showed up. Baal Shem Tov says, oh, my apologies. Here you go. 
jots down another address, gives him another piece of paper. Man goes, same story, buys the chicken, buys the potatoes, buys the bread, buys the wine, goes to the, to the second address. The second address is a house that's even more dilapidated than the first in an even poorer neighborhood. Again knocks in the door. Again, this tired-looking woman with six or seven children opens the door. Again, he gives her all the, the offerings. Again, he sits there and waits as everyone eats. And again, the prophet Elijah doesn't show up. The next morning, he goes to see the Baal Shem Tov a third time. And once again, the Baal Shem Tov jots down a different address. And once again, the person buys all the stuff and he goes... And once he arrives at the final address, he sees a house that's even smaller and more dilapidated. And he stops there and he says to himself, you know, I don't know what the deal is. I think the Baal Shem Tov is playing a trick on me. This is clearly not where you're going to meet the prophet Elijah. You know, tomorrow morning I'll go and I'll give him a piece of my mind. But tonight I'm just going to go home. And as he turns around to go home, he hears a voice from the other end of the door. And it's a young girl crying, saying, mommy, I'm really hungry. And the mother says, don't worry, my love. The Baal Shem Tov promised that in a very short while, there's going to be a knock on the door and the prophet Elijah is going to walk in and bring us dinner. And I love that story uh, because I think it's very much in line with everything that Rabbi Sachs has taught us and everything that we need to remember at this particular moment in time, which is it's very easy to sit by and wait for someone to come and be our redeemer and take care of all our problems and solve everything. But it's much harder to be that person for those who need it most. So let's honor Rabbi Sachs and let's honor this moment of transformation in American politics, culture, history by, by being the prophet Elijah rather than waiting to meet him ourselves. Amen. Selah. So I have spent a lot of dollars and a lot of pounds eating at Tom Colicchio's establishments. When we heard that Tom Colicchio, the top chef judge, the celebrity chef, the famous American culinary icon, was partnering with the 2nd Avenue Deli to create new twists on all Jewish classics, we knew we just had to talk to him. And when we found out he was married to a Jew, we were even more excited to welcome him into this mishpocha. So here it is, our calorically rich, nutrient-heavy conversation with your favorite chef and mine, Tom Kaliki. very special guest this week. Tom Colicchio is the head judge on Bravo's Top Chef and the chef and owner of Crafted Hospitality. Welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. We first brought you into our Jewish orbit a few years back when you wrote an entry for the 100 Most Jewish Foods, and you wrote the entry on whitefish. And you write that whitefish is the way my wife and I celebrate both of our family's cultures. Can you explain that a little bit for us? <laughs> because in my family tradition on Christmas Eve, we do salt cod. It's one of the 13 fish that we do. It's seven fish, depending on who you talk to, that we do. And so whitefish is so close to that. And and we 
quite frankly, we, we prefer whitefish to locks. That's just us. So yeah, that's it. I, I think that's, that's kind of where it comes from. And so when your relationship is starting, there must have been a moment in which you're like, Italian, Jewish, yeah, we're basically the same. I met my wife. She actually used to work for me. So we had a lot of food in common. But I grew up in an Italian-American household, but I was exposed to like, Jewish deli at a, at a very young age. My mother loved it. And so we used to go one town over, two towns over, Union, New Jersey had a great deli. So we would always stop there for, for bagels, lox, and the, the whole bit, and, and then deli and stuff. So I, it's always something that, was, that my family ate. It wasn't surprising. Nor was my first Seder, Passover. For those that don't know, my wife's Jewish, and we're raising two Jewish children. So I'm kind of Jewish, I guess. Um, so we were going through the Seder before we were married. And it was my first Seder at her family. You know, they think, uh, here's an Italian kid. What does he know about any of this stuff? And so we're going through it all. And I'm answering all the questions and, you know, kind of doing my thing. And they're like, how do you know this? And I said, well, it's the Old Testament. I, I'm, I spent 12 years in the Catholic school. I know the Old Testament really well. <laughs> I like the surprise, though. Who told the Goyim about Moses? Right. And they were surprised. And I'm scratching my head going, well, yeah, I know all this stuff. It's the same, same Bible, Old Testament. Come on. That's when I realized, well, there's, there's not a whole lot of difference here. The food question of food, it's, that's an easy one. I still say Italians probably have better food, but, you know. I'll just, you know. Oh, I think we'll agree. Yeah, okay. Come right, on. Okay. I that's mean. good. That's good. So our, our other food story my wife's a filmmaker, and back when we were going to movies, so this is before we were married, we were together for a bunch of years, and so we went to see a, a film. It was High Fidelity, and after watching a film, she would always want to discuss the film, and, and you know, I was expecting that as we were leaving the theater, and we're across the street from the 2nd Avenue Deli back when it was on 2nd Avenue. So we're walking across the street, and you know, High Fidelity, to me, I'm watching this film, and it was a great music film, but it's also... We really talked about men and how they're always waiting for the, the bigger, better deal to come around. And, you know, this guy, uh, he realizes that this woman who he should be with the rest of his life, he lost her because he thought there was something better coming. And I'm, I'm walking across the street and she's going on and on about the film. And I'm thinking like, this is it. What, what am I waiting for? And I had no plans at all. And I'm kind of like just nodding and listening to her talk. I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking like, I need to ask her to marry me. And so we, we get into the Second Avenue Deli and we order sandwiches. And as we're waiting, and I know you want to know which one, it's pastrami. I go for pastrami. And so I'm, we're waiting in line and I just kind of held her in and pulled her in and said, will you, will you marry me? I didn't have a ring or anything. And she just looked at me, she's like, what? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and she said, where's this coming from? I said, didn't you see that film? <laughs> So she said yes, and uh, it was really funny because everyone in the restaurant, they saw what was happening. I mean, we did it right in front of them all, and now we, we share a great relationship with the Second Avenue Deli, and when my children are born, they always send a nice care package home for us to get through the first couple of days, and uh, so that, that deli food brought us together, I guess, yeah. With this half-sour IV wed, I love yeah, it. Exa yeah, yes, exactly. No one will ever have a more romantic, meaty story <laughs> ever again. Very very good. A real meat cute. A real, yeah. Did you get to like cut the line once you get engaged? on the line to eat? I think so. I also, I'm, I'm lucky enough I get to cut the line at Russ and Daughters, which is, I usually get a really bad luck when that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's like real celebrity status. So you know you've arrived. It wasn't something I asked them to do. They were like, aren't you top police? Yeah. They said, come over here. Come over here. I was like, come, I don't need, I don't, people are looking at me like, this is like around the holidays and people are lined up and they're like, no, no, you pre-ordered this, right? Come on, pick up, <laughs> pick up your order. Okay, got it. <laughs> Let's talk celebrity for a second. I, I feel like you and Danny Meyer, kind of like, you know, the way the, the Beatles and the Stones sort of like define music for decades. You came along and I don't know that there was an American cuisine or like this kind of notion of, of like the way that restaurants are supposed to feel and be and kind of like the food that they're supposed to deliver. But I feel like Gramercy Tavern and Kraft, like 
it kind of did that. Listen, I, I certainly am, am not going to say that we created American food. I mean, there were people like you know Alice Waters and Jonathan Waxman, and but we set out with intention to make a great American restaurant. And when I say great, not not that we thought it was going to be a four star restaurant or whatever, but just our version of what a great American restaurant should be. We actually landed on the word tavern because we felt that you know words like cafe and bar and grill were kind of exploited. But we also really thought that like taverns. Back when people were going from city to city on, on horses, that's where they would stop, at the local tavern, because the local tavern was also usually had rooms. And it was a place where people would come together in the restaurant or in the eating area and exchange news of the day, and, and that's how news travel as well. And so we thought there was this conviviality around tavern and around the, what taverns were. So we, we thought that would be a, a great place to sort of house that great American restaurant. Looking back on it now, I'm really proud of it. I'm no, I'm no longer involved in the restaurant, but looking back on it, it's something I'm really, really proud of. Here's what I want to know. I mean, Alice Waters, tremendous, tremendous influence, great spirit, really, truly founding mother of the scene. But I feel like not that many people set out and said, oh, I'm going to do Japanese, like exactly this, right? But I feel like if you were eating out in the 90s and the 2000s in New York, like everyone was trying to do very consciously what you guys were doing. Is this a compliment? Is it is it weird? Is it annoying? No, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. There were people at the time who were trying to, you know, it, it became a thing. I mean, also, when I started cooking in 1978, I guess I was 15 or 16 years old, started working full-time in kitchens right out of high school at the age of 17. I grew up in an era where American chefs just started to come into their own. Yeah, I read the cookbooks by James Beard and Julia Child, and I learned French cuisine. I had worked around it, and then I ended up in a restaurant in, a, in Milburn, New Jersey, Milburn Churchill's, New Jersey. That was called 40 Main Street. The mecca of fine dining in America. Well, the Milburn Deli, of course. The Milburn Deli is great. It's great. Classic. Exactly. Yes. Okay. There you go. I used to be I married all the time. into a Jersey family. So. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> I know from Milburn Deli now. <laughs> I used to go there and get my liverwurst on pumpernickel with red onion and mustard mayo combo. Love that. Anyway, that was the first restaurant that I worked in, you know, having all this French technique and stuff where we were doing American food. So I, I grew up in, a, in, in that moment where... We didn't have to do French or Italian food. In fact, I, I never did an Italian restaurant. I'm, there's always some Italian influence back there. But for me, it was something that I wasn't really interested in doing for, in a restaurant. But that was when, you know, a lot of the great American chefs were starting to really break through and, and starting to talk about American food and American regional food. And really looking at America and breaking up the regions, and because the, the foodstuffs, especially when you're going back even then, that's when kind of the whole farm to table movement started, although it wasn't labeled farm to table. We were all starting to cook regionally, and whether it was, you know, Larry Forgione, who was doing his thing at the American Place restaurant, but was also, he had a connection to Michigan, so he was using a lot of foodstuffs from Michigan. And, and you know, had a lot of the chefs down south that were doing certain things. And in Louisiana, obviously, they had their restaurants that were slightly different. California, especially Northern California, always had a big Italian influence because that's where a lot of the Italian laborers ended up after, you know, building railroads and stuff like that. And that's how Chinatown ended up in San Francisco as well. It's kind of the end of the line. And so there was an influence there that was more Italian. New York always had a French influence because of La Pavillon, which was the restaurant that the French brought to the World's Fair, which then actually opened in New York as a, a brick and mortar restaurant. And that's where all the great French chefs came out of. You know, that's why there was a Lutece and a La Côte Basque and Le Caravelle and all those restaurants came directly from there. But my generation, we were okay with doing American food and trying to figure that out. And so for me, it was just a culmination of a lot of what was happening. And I think, you know, maybe we did a pretty good job of it. But I think it was because everything about the restaurants just reeked of 
you know, America without being cheesy. Well, and since then, you've obviously you've been on Top Chef, which is, you know, you are a TV star now, but you've also pivoted and you focus a lot on food insecurity, food affordability and hunger. Can you tell us where, when you sort of that became something that you really wanted to take on and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, as long as I've been a working chef in New York, you know, chefs around the country have always focused on issues of hunger. I think probably because we feed people who can afford to eat, we think it's a right and everyone should have access to you know, healthy, affordable food. And so coming up in New York, I've always worked with organizations like Share Our Strength and God's Love We Deliver, Meals on Wheels, raising money, doing events, kind of have chefs, you know, that's how we play our part. And then about eight years ago, my wife was mentoring a, a young girl whose family was living in a shelter in New York and she would come to our house and we invite her to have dinner. And it was clear that, you know, the second she walked in, she was hungry. And we started sending food home and trying to help out with her family. And then there was an incident. So, so she had some learning disabilities. And in, in New York City, if a child has learning disabilities and the public school can't meet the needs, the child can be placed in, in a private school where they can get what they need to mediate their disability. And um, we got a phone call from the principal first week saying that clearly, you know, this young girl's hungry. And the school didn't have a school lunch program. And so my wife decided that she wanted to explore what hunger in America really looked like. And she made a film, her and her partner, Christy Jacobson, made a film called The Place at the Table. And um, we started taking the film around, especially to Congress and showing it. And I had a platform, and, and, and that's what I chose to use my platform for. And soon after the film came out, I, I co-founded an organization called Food Policy Action. And Food Policy Action, we actually created a scorecard and created Congress on how they voted around food issues, issues around hunger or sustainable farming and clean waterways and things like that. So I was an unpaid, unregistered lobbyist to a certain extent because I spent a lot of time on the Hill talking to members of Congress and, and trying to get them to, to focus on food insecurity. And so that's how it started and still still doing that work. You know, we could we can end hunger in this country, which is really, when you think about it, a lot of people don't think about the numbers. I mean, even prior to the pandemic, there were still 17 million families that were struggling to feed themselves. That number is well over 30 something now. When we did the film, it was 36 million. You know, there's a lot of hunger in this country. We could end it just by funding SNAP programs and make them much more robust and WIC and school lunch, school breakfast, making school breakfast and lunch completely free instead of a three-tiered system where a third of the money that goes into the lunch actually goes into the administrative cost of deciding who gets free, reduced, and paid lunch. And yeah, so we could, we could end hunger. And you think about you know, what, what that would look like if we ended hunger. I mean, just the simple fact that so many people get lifted out of poverty because they're on SNAP, our food stamps, because that's the, the little bit they, extra that they need to actually make the difference between living in poverty and not. You know, these are these are all moral questions, and that's why we always say that that budgets, our, our congressional budget, our, our nation's budget, is really a moral document, not a political document. It shouldn't be a political document. And so it's just a priority. Do we want to end hunger? And when the answer is, you know, if the answer is yes, we can. We know we can. It just takes money. Amen to that. Rabbi Kalikio, I'm, I'm signing off. Yes, I'm on board. Could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, Citizen Chef, and what, what episodes should our listeners sort of start with if they haven't already been listening? The podcast is Citizen Chef. It's on iHeartRadio. Plug, plug. It came out of a, f a few things, actually. Um, there was a New York Times article written about me and my advocacy work called Citizen Chef, so they kind of supplied the name. I love policy and politics, especially around food. And, and so we, we started working on it. And um, it was also something I was working on with, with my wife and, and her organization, the Place at the Table's organization that came out of the film, which is mostly a messaging organization now working on, on messaging around hunger, because we found out that in a lot of cases, the way people talked about it wasn't really helping. So if you have a, a food bank network that says, well, we, we fed a million people, well, government and people say, well, they have it. What do we need to do? That's a million people. That's great. You keep doing that. You know, Let charity take care of it which isn't the answer. And so we just thought that some of the messaging around, you know, the, the issues around hunger would need to be changed. So the podcast, you know, came out of that. Like, just how, how do you 
reframe certain messages around food. But then also we know that so many you know policy issues around food were things that you'd see, I would see every day in the news. And maybe you didn't didn't see it as a food story, but to me it was. And so I remember, you know, the election of, of 2016, people, you know, we're really pushing the issues around food and said, well, you know, aren't you disappointed that you didn't hear food talked about? I think with the exception of one debate, it was mentioned for a second. I said, well, no, I, I hear it talked about all the time. And there was plenty of conversation around healthcare. When I hear healthcare, I hear food. Because certainly if healthy food were more affordable, we would have a healthier population and healthcare costs would probably go down. Right now we're spending $200 billion a year on healthcare costs that are associated with, with poor diet because in our country, calories are cheap and nutrition is expensive. And so when people are struggling to feed themselves, they go to the calorie dense foods, but not doesn't have a whole lot of nutrition. And so, you know, I hear national security, it's a food issue there too. 25% of the recruits that show up to fight in our military wash out because they're not fit to fight. You know, when I hear even more so now, and this will lead into the, the episode that I'm most proud of, reparations for African-American community that were enslaved. That's a food story because what was taken from them? Land. I mean, we have this myth that they were given 40 acres and a mule. Oh, well, no, they weren't. Johnson, as soon as Lincoln died, Johnson was president. He, he stopped that and took it all away. And so you talk about how do you build wealth in this country? Through land. And so when your land's taken away, not only do you not build wealth, but those foodstuffs that you were growing on that farm, you no longer can live there. So what do you do? Mass migration to Chicago, you know, into to the north. And so that land's stripped from you. So that's a food story because you can't, you can't grow food and take control of that food system anymore because you don't have land anymore. So these are all food stories. And so my favorite episode was with Michael Twitty, who's a, a chef and a, and a wonderful author. He wrote a book called The Cooking Gene. And uh, he's also Jewish, by the way. He's black and he's Jewish. He's amazing. He's a friend of the show. Yeah. Of course. Of course he is. <laughs> he wrote about pacha for the 100 Jewish foods. <laughs> right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, a, just a fantastic conversation with Michael. That was my favorite one because it's a, as someone who's white, we all want to have these conversations around race and, and it could be a minefield for, for someone who's white. And Michael was just great. I went to the conversation saying, hey, I, I, I'm going to probably screw this up, but let's have it. And he was just fantastic. So that, that was probably my favorite episode. But we also tackle, you know, how our food system came under a lot of stress because of COVID. You know, we saw these meat processing plants that were shut down and where all the workers were really infected and sick. And that almost, you know, completely crippled our, foods, our food system. Some of my suppliers who were supplying me directly, I have an oyster farmer out here. I'm on the North Fork of Long Island out right now. And that's why I said out here, I have an oyster farmer who 90% of what he grew went to restaurants. And now all of a sudden restaurants are closed. And so what he did to pivot... He literally started putting them in a truck and delivering it to customers himself, like residential customers. And my, one of my cheesemakers up in Vermont, Jasper Hill Farm, that makes probably the best American cheeses in, in the country. Hallelujah. Yeah. What they had to do. I mean, they were already selling into you know online sales, but still a majority of their sales were still through restaurants. And so they had to pivot. So that was, I thought, a good episode. But yeah, so that, that's how it came about. And, and we're, we're doing a second season. In fact, right after this, now that I have all my equipment set up, I have to do two commercials. <laughs> um, one for McDonald's and one for Wendy's. No, no, no. I, I get to choose, actually. <laughs> no, I'm doing Quip. Ooh. The toothbrush company. I got a quip one, and I'm forgetting the other one. I think it's for meter. It's it's a it's a, a digital meat thermometer that syncs up to your iPhone. That's amazing. Well, so while while we miss your restaurants, we could at least take comfort in listening to your podcast. So, Tom, you know, we we offer our gentiles the opportunity to ask us a question. You said you actually don't need any questions answered because you have you have your own in house Jewish authority. Which is impressive. My understanding, though, is is that you know in Judaism, there's always the question. That's that's the whole point of Judaism is to constantly ask those questions and constantly you know pull it apart. And so uh, you know, if, if I had a question, 
It's that's not so much a question. It's it's an observation because you know it's anti-Semitism. It's 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 alive and well in some places, growing. But because I'm clearly not Jewish, with my last name is Colicchio, no one thinks they are. Occasionally, I'm out and they'll you know I'll hear something, and at times I'll let it slip and just go oh, fucking idiot. I'm just I don't want to get into it. Other times I'll just say, yeah, you know, my children are Jewish, but thank you, and it just stops them. It's like shocked, and so you know it's always subtle. You know, it's never overt, but it's it's there and alive. So us Gentiles need to do our part. And, and you know, I need to get better at not letting it slip by and and always kind of pushing back on it. But I, I, and I, and I think that's, that's, that's always the question. I was like, how do we become allies? And, you know, it's, it's clearly, you know, us white folks are trying to figure that out. How do we become allies with the black brothers? And, and I think the same thing needs to be said for all religions and races. How do we, how do we get through this, especially when we had a president for the last four years who just stoked that that divide. And so, how do how do we heal? That's the question. How do we heal? Well, I, th- I think I think the question is very much the first step towards the answer, right? I mean, that that the question is asked, that the realization is there, that the empathy is there, that the open heartedness is there, is perhaps more than the first step. It's perhaps the first, second, and third steps. After that, you know, so much of it I think is situational. But but to have the kind of ears that could hear and and heart that could feel right then and there. Yeah, acknowledging it is the first step, but also, you know, how we paint America. You know, I, I really think that looking at this election, and I'm actually, I have the, I'm looking up because the TV's there, you know, Trump getting 69 million votes. Yeah, Biden right now has 73 million. That's great. But think about that. 69 million people. And I think, you know, quite frankly, when you tell anyone who votes, like, there's got to be some, this may be slightly controversial, but listen, there's somebody out there right now who maybe is a lifelong Republican who just votes for the party and they don't really care about his rhetoric, but that's just how they vote. And yet they're, you know, every time they turn around, it's like, you vote for Trump, you're a racist. And a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm not. And I so I think we got to do a better job of not labeling everyone with that label, but also at the same time, admitting that there's racism, there's bias out there and admitting to it first and then, yeah, taking the second step. So as much as I'd love to just go out there and when, I was in the car yesterday when Biden went over and, and he finally started winning in, in uh, Michigan and uh, I just started honking the horn. <laughs> and, but now, you know, I'm, I find myself to be a little more reflective about this right now and just kind of thinking like, where are we and how do we, how do we mend? What I'm so moved by is the way you've identified, like food is part of the story, right? Sitting down to a meal with someone, breaking bread. These are the things we are, we've lost in so many ways when you say, oh, you're a racist if you vote for that person, like as opposed to saying, let's sit down, let's talk. I mean, food to me is so much part of that. Yeah. And there's so many youth groups. And I'm sure you know a whole lot more about this than I do. So many youth groups that are, you know, Jewish youth groups that are reaching out to, to Muslims and Palestinians and saying, hey, how do we how do we break bread here? How do we get past the sins of our, our, our past generation? How do we move forward? You've left us with a lot to think about. I want to say food for thought, but I feel like that's a little too cheesy. Um, Tom Clicchio, thank you so much for being our, I don't want to call you a Gentile of the Week because you're basically, how about our mensch, our mensch of the Week? I'm just a gent. A gent. The gent of the week. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. 
As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Stephanie, that, that first letter is so choice. Would you read it for us? Of course. Dear Unorthodox, we are expecting our first child in January, and we've been making lists of names for many months now. We want our kids to have very Jewish-sounding names. It's important to us that Hillel can find them easily when they go off to college. <laughs> I like the idea of, like, actually Hillel, not like the organization Hillel. Um, right. Just He's walking around campus. He has a suitcase full of goods to so sell. We have relatives that we want to name after, one of which is my grandfather, Abraham. I love the name Abraham and the nickname Abe. My spouse likes the name but thinks we should name our kid Avraham instead of the assimilated version Abraham. For me, in English, the name ought to be with a B. And of course, their Hebrew name would be Avraham when it's spelled in Hebrew. Or if they're in Israel or when they're called to the Torah. But my grandfather was Abraham, and we speak English. We're at an impasse here. I assume Liel will be on his side, Stephanie on my side, and Mark will make some non-committal linguistic argument for both. But we're interested to hear. All the best, Amanda and Greg Herring. This is a this is a tough one. Amanda, I am going to surprise you right now. I'm a hundred percent on your side because this is America. In America, we speak English, not not that weird Hebrew language. I think you know, really. I think Hashem knows Avraham from Abraham. I don't think anyone is confused. Be like, oh, you mean Abraham? No, it's a totally different name. And if your grandfather's name was Abraham, and the sort of b movement is is the thing that you need to hear to get that warm, fuzzy feeling. I think Abraham is just fine. Here's the other thing. It's not as if, you know, you want to name after Grandpa Moshe and you want to call him Mitchell and your husband says, no, that's assimilated. We should call him Moshe or Moshe. Like, uh, Abraham but, does the Jewish work. You like, went with Abraham. Your husband would be right if you were leaping far from the Jewish and, you know, oh, we want to name after, you know, Grandma Hannah. We're going to name the kid Ashley. No, no, no. Abraham <laughs> does all the work you want it to do. 
I love this conversation though. Could you imagine like, I want Abraham's like, ah, too goyish. Too go- <laughs> no no yeah. one will get more Jews. And especially Abe. I love that you're going to name the kid, you know, Abraham, call him Abe or A.B. You know what? I like A.B. A.B. is a really A-B. good name. A.B. So we are baby 100% A-B. Little baby on A-B. your side. Tell Greg that, um, you know, he if he loses. wants us to be on his side, he loses. And, uh, you know, if he wants to talk about it, we expect a nice donation for next year. We could reopen this case. But meanwhile. <laughs> you guys missed the most important aspect of this. Producer Josh. The child's last name is going to be Herring. You're talking about <laughs> Abe Herring. Oh, amazing. So, guys, <laughs> like, with a name like Herring, like, your first name could be, like, Christopher Thomas, you know, Pope Benedict III. He's <laughs> Herring. Like, he's a Jew kind of by osmosis. Doesn't matter what this kid's going to be named. Abe Herring. A.B. Herring. I love him. I love him. 100%. Liel, would you read us the letter from our fine friend, Joseph Manet? Oh, would I ever. Shabbat Shalom, J. Crew. By the way, you had me at Shabbat Shalom. Anytime anyone <laughs> wishes me Shabbat Shalom, it could be a Monday. I'm like, I'm a New York Shabbat Shalom. Already, Joseph. I need your help once again. I am nearing my base in, and I have still not decided on a Hebrew name. This means that Joseph is returning home to Judaism. The best is the last stop on the conversion process. He will dunk in the mikvah. I am considering Yirmiyahu after my late grandfather, Jeremiah. But it's a bit cumbersome, and the prophet was quite sad. <laughs> Say that right. <laughs> I really like the name Ezra, but being married to a non-Jew, I'm not sure if it is fitting. Don't know about that, but we'll see. I'm also a huge fan of the story of Jonah, but his character is not exactly someone I'd like to emulate. My mother almost named me David, so I was considering that too. Help me out, J. Crew. I never liked my Catholic confirmation name, and I don't want to mess it up again. I'm open to any and all suggestions of different names. Mark, Stephanie, what 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 are we working with here? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll leap in, uh, dude. Your name is Joseph, the Hebrew Joseph, you know, big dude, right? One of the 12 kids of Jacob made you a fourth generation of Jews back in Torah. You can just be Yosef, be Yossi. I I don't understand. I don't understand the problem. Why are you seeking hither and yon over hill and dale for Yirmiyahu or or Yonah or whatever when you could just be Yossi? I, I, I move for Yosef. The answer, I think it's like the name was inside you all along. Exactly. It's Joseph. No. It's Yosef. I'm not, You're not I'm, into that? I'm not, no. I'm not signing on. He wants, no, he wants to go I think, big. I think, yeah, you want to go You want to rename yourself, basically. Go, you go okay. big or, or go home from shore. I think you want a sort of moment of, of sort of rebirth, recreation. I'm, I'm going to make uh, a, a campaign here uh, to return a great, great name. Nachshon. Nachshon in the Bible was the first dude who jumped into the Red Sea before it parted, trusting on faith that it will indeed part and that Moses will indeed deliver and that God will indeed protect. And I think anyone who sort of returns home to Judaism and is taking this kind of like big leap of faith is as commendable and as brave. And I think the name Nachshon kind of rocks and it has a lot of C's and H's and S's and H's and is nice. All right, I'm sold. Yeah. How, about, how about both? Nachshon Yosef. Nachshon Yosef. Nachshon Yosef. Ben Avraham Vassar. There we go. All right, let's go to Sarah for our last letter of the week. She writes in, okay, unorthodox, a friend of mine sent me this video in reference to counting votes. I count slowly, slowly, slowly getting faster. Once I start in counting, it's very hard to stop. Hey, faster, faster, it is so exciting. I could count forever, count until I drop. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. 
My first thoughts were, I love the Count. I love klezmer music. I'm a statistician. But then my second thoughts were, oh, wait. A vaguely human but not quite human character with a hooked nose singing klezmer and counting things? Problematic. My mom agrees with me. My husband and sister have no issue with the video. What do you three think? Yours, Sarah. I'm going to go to a really, you know, important reference on this, jewornotjew.com, which actually ran an article oh, about Count Von is Count, Count in is the 2011. Count yeah, it's basically the website you can go to that someone has decided whether everyone is Jewish or not. Um, okay. It's, it's sort of what comes up when you Google, like, Sesame Street, Count, is the Count Jewish? <laughs> Should you happen to Google, is the Count Jewish? This is which, what Which, you know, as up. one does professionally. As one does. The first line says, here's something we need to clear up. Just because something or someone is Eastern European doesn't necessarily make them Jewish. And his Jew score is a five. I think that might be five out of 10. I don't know exactly what they're... And then the verdict is not a Jew. So basically, here is what they're saying. We don't buy that Count von Count is Jewish just because he sings to what appears to be klezmer. He is modeled on Bela Lugosi, an Eastern European, not a Jew. Two, he is voiced by Jim Nelson, not a Jew, which... Three, he hails from Romania, not necessarily a Jew. Four, that's supposedly klezmer music. The Song of the Count is actually based on the traditional Hungarian dance. Um, yes, it's a mazurka, yeah. So basically what this is saying, and this doesn't really answer the question, right? This is just saying that the count himself is probably not Jewish. Maybe it's because I grew up in Israel and, you know, kind of watched Rehov Sumsum, our local and much impoverished version. But like, I really like deeply always assumed that everyone on Rehov Sumsum or as you call it, Sesame Street <laughs> in America, uh, they're all Jews and they're all Grover's denominations, a Jew? right? No, the no. Cookie Monster's a Jew. Hear me, hear me out in this one, right? You have sort of Big Bird, who's a sort of like your your like conservative Jew, middle of the road, like goes to shul. It's all fine. Everybody loves him. Then you have Snuffy, who's sort of like the breast lover. He's like he goes alone. Like maybe he's imaginary. He like has this weird like song and dance, etc. You have Elmo. Elmo is sort of like your Chabad, like, hey, let's sing and dance, celebrate Shabbat, and, you know, everyone will be happy. The Count is like this yeshivisha, like, old world Jewish. Super right? litfish. They all sort of fit, right. They all fit a very good Jewish stereotype. So growing up in America and, and not on Long Island, as Stephanie, growing up in Western Massachusetts, I watched Sesame Street and assumed nobody there was Jewish. They were all Irish Catholic. These were just different parishes whose little league teams you could play for. <laughs> And, um, you know, the Count, you know, P.S., Eastern European nobility, they were not Jews. <laughs> you didn't get to wear the cape and call yourself the Count in Romania if you were a Jew. Uh, maybe you were that guy's banker. Maybe you were his, you know, bootmaker, but you were not the Count himself. So, but look, I mean, obviously Sarah's question, which is a profound and deep and important one, is does this play into Jewish stereotypes? I'm not worried about this. I think the Count definitely reads as Transylvania, Dracula, you know, et cetera. Now, some would then say, but isn't that guy Jewish? I, I don't think so. Like, not all nefarious people Blood with sucking, Eastern European accents. Uh, Bloodsucking. <laughs> Transylvanians <laughs> are Jewish. Exactly. So, so show not all hook-nosed, money-obsessed, <laughs> blood-sucking people are Jews. That's the takeaway from this episode. The count is actually like a retort to anti-Semitism, saying like, <laughs> it's not just Jews who love – like, I love that. This is diversity. We are seeing it in action. I like it. Absolutely. So we don't worry about this. Is that what you're saying? No worries. It's a feel-good week. No worries. It's morning in America. Gay gazint, have a challah, and dance a mazurka.
Our Jew of the Week is Lila Corwin Berman. She is a professor of history at Temple University. She is one of the world's leading authorities on Detroit Jewelry, which we're not going to talk about today. But for all your Detroit Jewelry questions, her prior book was about that. And she's the author of The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi-Billion Dollar Institution, which is an awesome and provocative book, or maybe awesome because provocative. Thanks for being here, Lila. My pleasure. I'm just going to start with the point you make that Jewish philanthropy, Jewish money, as dispersed in America is a complex. And you even say it's like the military industrial complex that Eisenhower talked about. So explain to us what the Jewish philanthropic complex is. The reason that I decided to use that term, which I understand is provocative, is precisely because my goal was to talk about how through American Jewish philanthropy, multiple forces weave together. And some of them are absolutely tied to various sets of Jewish communal interests. But the weaving happens through all sorts of American state policies, right? So one of the things that happened when I started to study American Jewish philanthropy is I had people tell me, yeah, okay, you're going to find that powerful people have money and have the ability to control a lot of things with their money. And there's nothing new about that, right? And like to a historian, those are sacrilegious words. Nothing new here. Right. Always been the same. Wealth, power. Yes. Okay. So to me, what was like really important was the ways that these very specific American policies that changed over time that didn't exist the same way in 1920 as they did in 1970 actually changed the way that American Jewish philanthropy was able to operate and and ended up changing some of the outcomes, some of the ways that influence worked through philanthropy, and then imprinted themselves on people's lives, on lots of different people's lives. Just to be clear about what we're talking about here, we obviously know some of the big names, Bronfman, Wexner, Schusterman, Steinhardt, Adelson, right? These are people who have funded a lot of work you've done, a lot of work I've done. But what you're saying is the world in which certain big names have a lot of control over money spent in the Jewish community is a product of historical forces. It actually wasn't this way 100 years ago. So what are some policy changes that gave today's Adelsons and Bronfmans and Steinhardts like extra suck in affecting our Jewish lives? So one of the biggest changes that's happened in American Jewish philanthropy over the 20th century has to do with the ways that philanthropic capital is accumulated without being circulated. And we know this mainly through thinking about endowments. And although certain institutions in American life more generally have had endowments for a very long time, most Jewish philanthropic organizations really specifically eschewed them. They thought they were not a good idea to have endowments like in the early 20th century. They felt like there were a lot of like present material needs that had to be met with whatever philanthropic money was raised. So money should go in and money should go out. So you gave to the Federation and they gave to the local hospital or day school or JCC. Exactly. And then you would give again next year, right? I mean, that was really the model. And what happens in the middle decades of the 20th century is a number of different things, right? One thing is American Jews get wealthier. They have more socioeconomic opportunities and they kind of climb up that class ladder. And so those very kind of present urgent material needs start to not be like such an urgent force, right? But another thing that happens is that there's a number of shifts in American tax law that actually some Jewish federations and some Jewish tax lawyers are really involved in that make it much more attractive to philanthropic institutions to actually hold back capital and put it in the investment economy and grow it with some kind of like abstract sense of a future need that it could satisfy. And what this ends up 
doing is that dollar for dollar, those people who are able to build endowments. So whether it's like a public charity, like the Jewish Federation system, or a private foundation like Wexner's Foundation, when people can put money in those kinds of endowment structures, they benefit through more tax exemptions and deductions. So they get more public subsidy to their philanthropic work. And they also are able to hold more of a sense of power, not just over the present, but over the future. And this is one of the really big shifts that was interesting to me, and it ties into a second shift, which is the rising power of a very few, you know, kind of mega donors to set a lot of the agenda of American Jewish communal life by not necessarily spending a huge amount, but actually holding a lot. So in this conversation and in this book, we are talking about Jews, money, control, power, all sorts of things that sort of like set me on edge. Like, you know, this idea of like, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to explain how these mega donors ascended to these positions of power. I mean, were those sort of more insidious stereotypes? Was that something that was on your mind as you took on this project and as you came to uncover all these different layers? Absolutely. A number of years ago, I got on the trail of this guy named Norm Sugarman because he was this Jewish tax lawyer from Cleveland who was really brilliant and testified in front of Congress and Treasury and helped create what we know today as donor advised funds, basically helped create a really important charitable vehicle for getting really good tax treatment for charitable money. So I was studying him, so interested in him, and gave a little paper about him. And the foreword somehow found out that I'd written about this and asked me to write something about Sugarman and donor advised funds. So I did. I'm coming home from work one day on the train and my cell phone rings and it's this guy from the tax office of the Jewish Federation system. And he says to me, what are you doing? How dare you write this piece about Jews and money and lobbying and control? And he said to me, you can write about Israel. You can write anything you want about Zionism, but do not touch Jews and money. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, right? So. Yeah, I mean, and he didn't have to tell me that, right? I am aware that these are really tricky, touchy topics. And my point is to say that these are not like some kinds of, you know, insidious Jewish forces that operate in some conspiratorial way. This is how American political economy works, right? American policy, American tax law. We're seeing right now in real time a lot of indication that tax law does not treat all people equally, right? No. (laughs) Right. But I hear you. And, And as I say in the book, at the end of the day, like I have some anxiety about who might see these words and decide that they just confirm certain ideas they have about Jews and money and power. Something I think about a lot is that I think our listeners of this podcast fall into many groups, but chief among them are sort of like, there are definitely people for whom these acronyms that you lit, AJC, Wexner felt like where, where those things are sort of part of their lexicon. And then I think that we have listeners who might actually be very far removed from that, that infrastructure. But I think that what you lay out really early on is the ways in which Jewish lives are touched by philanthropy. Can you give us an example of someone who might think that they actually have no part in this ecosystem, might be hearing this and saying like, Bronfman, who is that? You know, could you sort of give us the very basic role that philanthropy is playing in people's lives? Say if you've ever gone to a Jewish community center, chances are that that Jewish community center has two basic sources of wealth. One is the health club and the other are some wealthy philanthropists, right? If you look around, you'll see their names on a wall somewhere. That's one way. If you have children and you are Jewish in the United States, there's a high chance that your children receive books 
once a month from PJ Library. That might not be all of your listeners who fall into that second camp you described, but probably many of them do. Well, it should be because they're one of our sponsors. <laughs> okay, then, then, then free advertising, except they don't need to be advertised, right? PJ Library is funded through a number of different sources, but one of the primary ones is the Grinspoon Foundation, Harold Grinspoon, who is a wealthy Jewish philanthropist who, who made a lot of money in real estate. If you have participated in Travel to Israel, right, that trip was funded by a number of different sources. But for many years, Adelson's money, Sheldon Adelson's money, was about 40% of the philanthropic outlay that Birthright spent. I mean, so far, I hear you listing a lot of stuff that like I and my kids have been given for free, which has been cool. Is there something malignant? Is there a dark side to this that we don't know as we take the free stuff? So not necessarily. Sometimes it's just like a nice gift. Nice that person could be generous. But I think the flip side to remember is that in a sense, 30% of the millions of dollars spent on Birthright in any given year is really American taxpayers' money. Because of the tax breaks that are given to all charitable donations. Exactly. And and 30% might be a conservative estimate. So then we have to start asking, like, whose interest is it in? Whose interest is that trip, right? And, you know, we have a pretty low bar in American civic life. Like, I could also donate to help neuter animals or to put up some art installation that very few people will see or understand, perhaps, right? And in a way, that's that's part of like American pluralism. It's kind of what makes this country really interesting, that lots of people can decide what is in the public good. But there are times when we need to ask, is this something, like this has the public consent, and yet, especially when these are programs that are so clearly directed by very, very few people, who have a great deal of access to capital, and then are dollar for dollar really increasing their capital access and their power through philanthropy, is this serving the public good? And, and we can even ask it in a smaller sense, like, is this part of this project of American Jewish civilization? To really have like a few foundations have in many ways a kind of unchecked power. I mean, there's this other kind of reality lurking, and you get into this a little bit in the later chapters of your book, which is that Jewish giving has become more conservative, more right-wing, more Republican-affiliated. And you point out there's no way to quantify. I mean, there are plenty of liberals who give Jewishly, whatever that means, and there are plenty of conservatives who don't. But it is inarguable that a lot of the big Jewish donors have become very identified with right-wing politics. And I always look at that and say, yeah, and of course, I regret that because I'm not a right-winger. I would have it be otherwise. On the other hand, where are all the lefty billionaires? And there are some, but they don't seem to care as much. Like David Geffen doesn't seem to care about his Judaism. I mean, we do have this problem, right? Which is that observance and even Jewish learning, even just text study, seems to notionally excite older right-wing men as they get into their upper years. In a way, it doesn't seem to excite older left-wing men, maybe because the left is you know, congenitally a little more anti-religious, a little more secularist. I mean, there is this kind of knot that's hard to untie. It seems to me almost structural and unsolvable. How do we solve it? Part of it is this kind of battle, and I'm a historian, so I'm not going to say it's always been this way, right? But between universalism and particularism. And so it does tend to be the case that Jews who align with a more left-of-center politics also align with more, more of the ideals of universalism. The ideals that like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fund a homeless shelter and I'm going to understand that and talk to my children about that as a real Jewish act. Whereas like maybe I'll give some money to a particular organization in Israel-Palestine that I think is achieving lefty ends, but I'm not going to believe that all of my Jewish giving 
has to sort of like tick these narrow boxes. But interestingly, in studies of Jewish philanthropy, any money a Jewish person gives to Israel, and like it could be to like the pork industry in Israel, is marked <laughs> is marked as Jewish philanthropy, right? So I, you know, I do think that part of it is our own imagination about what is Jewish and what's not. And so if we continue to believe that doing Jewish is doing things that are like circumscribed in a very particular way, like that they're day school, that they're Israel, that they're on-campus efforts to stop BDS, whatever it might be, like then I think we're gonna continue to see like, okay, well, you know, why is it that people care so much about Judaism happen to be right wing? But we might expand our imagination in a different sort of way. Maybe that's an accounting trick. <laughs> I have to ask about you, though, because you move in a world, you are a professor. So many professors have endowed chairs. So many fellowships have funders. I mean, are you persona non grata in this world that you have inhabited for so long after writing this? We're about to make her that. We're getting the word out. (laughs) And do you want to be our sponsor for the next few episodes (laughs) after this airs? Yeah, you might need to sponsor me. Am I persona non grata? Look, I think that there's certainly people who would be happier if I kept my mouth shut. With this project, I've moved into writing some more public pieces, you know, trying to kind of build some awareness about some of these dynamics like outside of academia. And I think that rankles certain people. I think certain people, especially who work in the world of Jewish philanthropy, feel like, you know, yeah, I'm bringing these like academic ideas, but I don't understand the practical realities of things. So I get that like a lot, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you about like democracy and whatever, but like at the end of the day, you know, we have these programs that we need to fund and people's salaries we pay and you really have no idea. So like, that's one kind of response I get. To write this book, I had over a hundred different conversations with people today who work in the world of Jewish philanthropy. And those were some of the most uplifting conversations I had because what I realized is that these are really smart, thoughtful people who are working within a system that has certain rules and many of them are doing a good job at it. And many of them have stopped in quiet moments to ask, is this the way things should be? And so I think that there are at least some people, I like to think there are some people that are sort of glad I'm starting to say some of those quiet things in a louder voice and that, you know, I have a bit of the remove and protection, frankly, to do that. So I like to think I'm everyone's friend, but that remains to be seen. (laughs) So these professionals who, by the way, I agree when I talk to people actually in the work, right? They're wonderful. Like they're lovely and often very underpaid. And some of them stop and say, is this the way things have to be? How should things be? And I mean that on two levels. One, how should maybe our tax code or our philanthropic complex look different? But also as donors and consumers who don't have billions of dollars, how should we act? I think the first thing is a pretty basic idea that I don't think that we should have so much capital stuck in so few places. And that counts endowments, that counts donor advised funds, that counts all of these like crazy hedge fund world ways that like notional capital gets pushed here, there, and the other place, when there is such persistent public need, and when there's such disparity between the very, very wealthiest and everybody else, I think that we should all be working on policies that unstick capital. So that's the big policy answer. But I also think that in Jewish philanthropic life, we should start to think about whether we think Jewish philanthropy in the United States has anything to do with democracy. And if we think that in a sense, like the reason that the United States has been relatively good for Jews is because of democracy, 
then I think we need to really think long and hard about what our philanthropic behavior and practices is doing and how it's operating in so many ways counter to the ideals of democracy. And we might try some ways of changing that, right? So does that mean maybe having more participatory processes for thinking about the allocation of grants, having a much broader sense of if there's a community we're trying to help, what if we actually say that they should have some control over the capital that we're giving them to be helped? What if we have ideas that money that's held should always be lent out in the form of very low interest or 0% interest loans? And these are things Jews have done but they're not very common practices anymore because the rules of the game have really switched. But I think that the space of American Jewish philanthropy could shift in that way and could also see itself not as like downstream from these big policy problems, but actually as like right in the heart of it. If you're telling somebody to pledge 50% of their estate to the Jewish people in the future, you're probably saying that there shouldn't be much of an estate tax either. So maybe you got to think about those things. So in terms of like, us, like people who probably don't have millions of dollars to give away, I think the number one thing I would say is inform yourself. Like understand that you are complicit in this system and understand that you have a right because you are the public and because your tax dollars help fund this to ask questions, to understand it, to understand where this money comes from, how it was made, what kinds of behavior at the top was allowed or not allowed by this kind of philanthropic world, right? So to inform yourself, to ask questions, to expect that you should be able to know how this works. So those are some of the things that I would say. So before we let you go, I guess I want to take this into the very much here and now. You know, we spent the past year going on a book tour and we went to all these JCCs and we met all of these amazing people who work in all sorts of places, you know, particularly programming. And now, you know, we hear from them and they're furloughed because of the pandemic. I mean, what happens if, you know, people can't get into your gyms, people can't use your preschool? How do you still run these communal organizations? And and what does it look like for those people who, who work so hard? And as Mark said, like are often, you know, like these are thankless, underpaid jobs, but they're so important to sustaining community. I think that there's the possibility that this pandemic and, you know, what I have to imagine is going to be a much bigger economic crisis than we're even seeing at this moment is going to like remake a lot of the lines of how Jewish communal life works. And the worst part absolutely is that people have lost their jobs, that people who relied on funding that came from Jewish philanthropy no longer have access to it. I'm sure this is like way too radical for many people to consider, but I would say that really what this calls for is like an incredible circulation of money that like, instead of just having this feeling like, oh, there's crisis, so we really have to hold tight to this capital, it's the only thing that's gonna keep us afloat, actually to spend a lot of it out. So to have new programs along the lines of programs that happened in the like progressive era when massive waves of Jewish immigrants were coming to the United States, where that need-based philanthropy was every year, really frankly, every minute, just circulating capital, right? To give people access to new professional skills, to give people more education, to give people just simply money so that they could live, mutual aid. I mean, we have, depending on how you count it, it's between 25 and $45 billion that's in Jewish philanthropy right now in capital. We could pay everyone's salary until the pandemic is a year in the past and people have found a new equilibrium, right? I mean, why aren't they doing that? We have decided it is a rule that this money has to exist into the future. It's an existential rule. And maybe this is a moment to say, Actually, I have some faith that we might be able to exist in the future, but I'm scared about how we're existing now. 
Lila Corwin Berman's book is The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, the history of a multi-billion dollar institution. And I think everyone who's ever given to a Jewish philanthropy or gotten money from a Jewish philanthropy, which is 83.5% of the people listening to the show, should read this book. It's very eye-opening and a powerful read. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Mazel tovs. I think that this week, you know, there's there's so many mazel tovs to offer in the world and and especially with American elections, we all have whoever you are, you have some favorites who won or prevailed or survived or whatever and we encourage you to 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 think those mazel tovs in your heart. But this is also a time when sometimes we say mazel tov for a life well lived and say a farewell. We've already talked about Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, whom we lost this week. Sean Connery drove his Aston Martin to his eternal rest. And then of course, another great member of the Commonwealth, uh, these are all non-Americans, the great Canadian-American sage, prophet, indeed I might say Rabbi Alex Trebek died earlier this week. You know, I don't know about you, Stephanie and Liel, but for me, Alex Trebek, I watched so much Jeopardy. I once tried out for Jeopardy. I didn't make it on. It was America, right? The the guests were this extraordinary cross-section of people. The trivia was everything, was Jewish, was black, was baseball, was hockey, was polo, was Hollywood, was... Iowa. It was just, and and I don't love game shows like Wheel of Fortune, totally insipid, right? But Jeopardy, and it really, to me, Alex Trebek was really showing that trivia is in some, in some ways, I felt like he, he made the case that trivia was the American religion, that facts about who we are and about our world were something that could bring people together. I know I just loved the guy so much and I will, I will miss him. If I think about him, who was such a steady presence on the television, like no matter, you know, every single day, if you flip through the channels, um, He's sort of like the Mr. Rogers for adults, right? Like this yeah. idea of like, you're safe here. This is like, I'm the steady voice that can like lead the ship. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, the, the, the sort of grace with which he met that announcement, basically saying, you know, I will, I feel very grateful for, for all the support. I feel very, uh, you know, thankful for the life I've led and I'll keep on doing this for as long as I can. Like, I probably would have gone crazy. I'd be like, I'm quitting right now to go, like, you know, indulge and engage in whatever I can for as long as I can. But he was the person. He was at work until like through last week. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible mm-hmm. and incredibly inspiring. I also want to say, as someone who's a bit of a Canadiophile, that fundamental decency, the wit and warmth of the kind of SCTV Eugene Levy, Dan Aykroyd wit that would peek through, on top of a fundamental decency and generosity, is very very Canadian. Like he was not a snarky or mean person. Also. His willingness to play with facial hair, his willingness to go mustache, you know, for a season or two, then go goatee. And I I envy that. I don't have that kind of courage. I'll take Alex Trebek for a thousand. All right. My sister, Rachel Oppenheimer, and her husband, Eric Rolfson, have had their first baby. I have a new niece, grandchild number 11 for my parents. Esther Anna Rolfson was born last Monday, just in time for the election in Chicago. She's home with mom and dad and doing well. And the whole Oppenheimer and Rolfson mishpuchas are bursting with pride and joy. And we're so, so happy to welcome little Esty to the family. 
Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a tasteful and not overly long voicemail. 914-570-4869. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scarbuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our theme is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Eugene Levy, the rabbi, not the actor. I don't think. It would be fascinating if it were the same guy. He's from North Shore Jewish Congregation in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we come to you again from the scattered locations of tablet studios across America. Shalom, friends. Mailbox. It's the mailbox. It's where people write us nice, good things. Yeah.